This Week at Hope Point. If the task of the beast is to use his mouth to speak blasphemy, then the task of the church is to use our mouth to speak truth louder than the beast. That's what he's called you to do. You say, when the beast is active, what's, what's our strategy? Preach more. Sing more. Gather to pray more. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Richard speaks to us from God's Holy Word. William Carey was born August 17, 1761 in Northamptonshire, England. As a young man, he was obsessed with the conviction that the gospel of Christ should be preached in every part of the world where Jesus was not known. He would spend 41 years of his life serving God in India. Ronnie and I have had the privilege of spending precious days where he served in Calcutta. He faced so many obstacles before he left and while he was there that I would say any one of those obstacles would have caused many of us to turn away. He had to drop out of school at age 12 because his family was so poor he had to become a shoemaker, a cobbler. But even while studying, even while working in the shoe house, he studied Latin, he learned Latin. He preached a sermon to be accepted to be a minister and he was turned down at his ordination because he was didn't have a formal education. While living in England, Carrie and his wife Dorothy lost two children in, in infancy to disease. Very few of his pastors really believed that we should go around the world leaving our home for the gospel. So he was underfunded and had to move five times his first year just to be able to afford housing. In 1794, his five-year-old son Peter died in Calcutta. One year later, his wife began to experience a mental breakdown because of the stress of that and many other things related to a very difficult culture that would continue to plague her for 12 years until she died. Carrie would preach the gospel for seven years before the first person would say yes to Christ in that Hindu culture. Not only did he have to disciple people of coming to Christ, but he had to fight the social injustice of India in which the widows... Their bodies were burned when their husbands would die so that they would not be, they were killed, so they would not be a burden on society and the family. It was a practice he put an end to, or fault to put an end to. In 1812, when he moved to Sarampore, there was a fire in his study, in his, in his really in his, his entire uh, little university setting that destroyed the work of translation that he had been working on for years. But despite the endless hardships that he faced, he stayed in India for 41 years. And because he stayed, a worldwide movement of missionaries launched out of Europe and even eventually in America to go to Asia and to go to all parts of the world because of the example of William Carey, who was later referred to as the father of modern missions. When William Carey, before he died in 1834, he was asked at a lecture, well, how did you do it? How did you survive all of that, not just 41 years in India, but the entire life before? And this was his answer. He said, well, I just learned how to plod. Hmm. Nothing big, 
Word plod means to work at a task slowly, continuously, even though it's difficult. That's all it means. I learned how to plod. That's what the book of Revelation says is the answer for surviving these difficult days of being plagued by opposition if you're a follower of Christ. The apostle John ends Revelation 13. This is supposed to be verse 10. Sorry about that. In verse 10 of Revelation 13, he says, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. It is a call to, you say, what am I supposed to do in life? You're supposed to pursue God's calling on your life to be faithful to that and to endure even when that calling causes you to suffer. That's all you're supposed to do. Like many of us probably started off life saying, I want to do something great for God. I want to have a big impact for God. And that certainly is a great ambition. But God never calls us to do anything for him that is visually and measurably large. What he calls us to is to be faithful to a call that he puts on our life, whether or not we see any success with that or not, and to endure when that call is hard. He doesn't call you to be healthy. He doesn't call you to have a good retirement. He doesn't call you to live a long time. He calls you to be faithful to a calling he placed on your life and to endure when that calling is hard. Revelation 13.10 comes at a point, a series of of nine verses that preceded it, where the Apostle John introduces us to an entity, a force, that's going to work against your faith, going to work against the faith of the church. It's why we needed to come together today and sing, as Hunter said, to sing to one another, sing to God and to one another, to again be able to resist the force that's working against you, one in Revelation 13 that's known as the Antichrist. This is how the book describes his power against the church. Verses one through seven, the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority and the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. They also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast and who can wage war against the beast? The beast opened its mouth to blaspheme God. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. So in our study of Revelation, we spent chapter 12 looking at one called the dragon that chapter 12 identifies as Satan. And here in chapter 13, we see where Satan, the dragon, gives his power to some earthly entity. So it's no longer just this invisible entity called Satan who's behind the scenes. Now, physically, there's an entity on earth called the beast that has the power of Satan. Actually, there are two beasts in chapter 13. One of the beasts comes out of the sea and one of the beasts comes out of the land. So you can just sort of see the dragon and two beasts is sort of a holy or an unholy trinity of evil working against the church in the the last days. So the Bible says that This dragon, Satan, stood on the shore and saw the beast coming out of the ocean. If you're new to the book of Revelation, I asked a young man last week, how are you doing with our study? He said, well, man, I'm just confused about all of these Dungeons and Dragons talk. (laughs) It's called apocalyptic literature, and the reason that writers use it is to try to grasp our attention when our minds may have gotten dull. This is why for the why, why the wild language? 
Because there is an attempt by the writer to create urgency that you would see just how evil evil is, that it looks like a hideous dragon or looks like a hideous beast that makes its way out of the ocean to be empowered by the dragon who's standing on the sea. And if you study apocalyptic literature or basically all the literature, the ocean is always pretty much regarded as evil. You can imagine being on the ocean at night, dark, stormy, how horribly frightening that would be. That's what the ocean looks like in Scripture. It's, it's chaotic. And so out of this chaotic darkness, the dragon standing on the shore in the darkness, ready to give the, its power to one called, one called the beast. So we have the book of Revelation, but the people before us in the Old Testament had the book of Daniel, which was simply an Old Testament version of Revelation. And so the beast is talked about there, and I'm just mentioning this for those of you who are sort of farther along in eschatology, you say, isn't there a beast also somewhere else in the Bible? And it's found in the book of Daniel. He, he sees the end of times as John does. He says in chapter 2 of verse 2, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were four great beasts, each coming out of the sea. I'm sorry, that should be Daniel chapter 7. Sorry about that. Daniel 7, verse 2. I had a vision of, of four great beasts coming out of the sea. So if you read the book of Daniel, these are the four beasts that he saw. One of them looked like a leopard. One of them looked like a bear. Beast three looked like a lion. And beast four was simply a terrifying animal, much worse than the others. And it was just described as a beast with iron teeth that had devoured now, Daniel was written about 550 years before Jesus lived, and Daniel was given the ability to see the nations that would come into the world, state power that would be working against righteousness, state power that was working to promote unrighteousness. And the first state power was Babylon. That's beast one. It was defeated by the Persians and the Medes. That would be beast two. Beast three is Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, and his kingdom was divided to four generals. That's why beast three has, is divided in four. If you, if you read Daniel, you'll see it's divided into four different segments. And then beast four, beast four had not come when Daniel was writing. He looked ahead and he could see, and obviously the church in the first century was fully aware of what beast for it was the Roman Empire. There had never been any vicious attack and onslaught of unrighteousness against the church like the Roman Empire. That's why beast four is a beast with terrifying teeth. For over three centuries, the Roman Empire terrorized the church. And so we also know that in the end of times, it will be beast number four that continues to raise its head through in cycle after cycle that we also deal with in the church. And that's why here in Revelation chapter 13, we see that beast number four is a combination of all the beasts that Daniel saw. Look, the one beast in Revelation 13 is a combination in verse two of a leopard, a bear, and a lion all combined together. So the final beast of history, as the Antichrist gets more and more power, is a combination of every beast, of every God opposing state power ever. And that 
that beast will have a power at the end of verse 5 to terrorize the church for 42 months, which I have tried to tell you in three sermons that 42 months is apocalyptic language to describe all of the time from the resurrection of Jesus Christ to his return. 42 months is the period in which we're living now. You would just have to go back and listen to earlier sermons. We are dealing with the fourth beast. We're dealing with the beast of Revelation 13. He grow. you will see in this talk today, he grows, rises, is subdued, and then rises again with, with increasing power. So that would raise the question today, which you would want to know if, from anybody who's teaching Revelation, who is the beast? Next, year, next week we look at, he obviously has a number, 666, and we'll get to that later, but just a general description of the beast now would be, would be something like this. The beast is a powerful force that opposes God and those who serve Jesus Christ, his son. It's a force known as the, as the Antichrist. So when you're reading Revelation chapter 13, you say, well, I don't see the word Antichrist in there. I just see the word beast. The Apostle John does not use the word Antichrist in the book of Revelation, interestingly, but he does use it five other times in other books that he wrote. First, second, and third John, he talks about the Antichrist. This is probably one most familiar to you. This is the same writer of Revelation. He's describing the beast, except with a name that's more common to you. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. And this is how we know that it's the last hour. So throughout history, there's going to be many powers in which there could be many moments in history where Satan grants unusual power to some force, some entity, some group of people, some group of leaders that are very capable of doing great damage against the church. They are collectively known as the beast or the, or the antichrist. So people often ask at this particular time in a sermon like this, is the antichrist a person or is the antichrist an organization? And the answer is somewhere sort of yes, that it, it's more of a group of people, I would think, from what I'll tell you, but normally they are led somewhere behind the scenes by one particular person. But this would be my description. You will have to, I told you before, I'm teaching the book of Revelation. There are times where I'm making an educated guess. So I reserve the right to be wrong. But you would have to do more study than this. You would have to, it's fine to disagree, but be better than me. And you can be better than me, but this is where we are today, a definition of, of the Antichrist. It's an organization made up of demonically controlled people. And we know that's true from Satan gives his power to the beast. An organization made up of demonically controlled people is a system which combines political and cultural forces working together to oppress the followers of Christ. That's what he does, you can see in verse 6. The beast opened its mouth to blaspheme God, to slander his name, and given power to wage war against the church. That's where I got that definition. So it's an organization of demonically controlled people, probably with a very tight-knit group of leaders. And throughout history, there have been many antichrists there have been many of these organizations that rose up, like in the first, second, and third century, and 
did great damage against the church and then their power was not as great, which we will see in the remainder of, of the teaching today. But this is what I want to say. Very often, the greatest power that has done the greatest damage against vulnerable and weak people on the earth, especially the church, has been the government, has been the state. And the reason why it's logical to assume that the government would be at the center of the Antichrist is because there's not a greater concentration of power on earth than in the state. You can't find more power than in the political and military system within any, in any country. So you can look at different killings that have occurred throughout the centuries. The church has been involved in them, in the Crusades. The church killed Muslims. Then you look at jihadists, Islamic terrorists. They've killed Christians through the ages. But nobody has killed more people with more veracity, with more of a ferocious nature than the government. You've heard before that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. When the government has great power and is controlled by the spirit of the dragon, the devil, it is a very dangerous government and inflicts great damage on its people. From 1979 to 1982 in the Soviet Union, Len Lenoid Brezhnev killed a million of his people. From 1932 to 1953, Joseph Stalin killed between 9 million and 20 million of his people. Hitler killed 11 million people. From 1949 to 1969, Mao Zedong in China and Mao defeated Somewhere between 20 and 40 million. He killed 20, 40 million of his people. Chairman Mao. So when you look at the power of the government to destroy, when the government is endued with great power and that power is used for evil, it results in phenomenal destruction. And this is sad. It's amazing because God said in Romans chapter 13, he's so pro-government he invented it. He said, I'm going to create a government and I'm going to give it a sword in order to punish evil. So the government is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. But when the government is corrupted by the power of the dragon and the government becomes the beast... The government completely gets it upside down and the government begins to punish righteousness and reward evil. That is the power of the Antichrist. That is the power of the beast. When the government punishes righteousness, rewards evil and its citizens do not become safe. Do not feel safety, which is the number one power or the number one task of governments to keep its people keep its people safe. But in no way do I want to limit the beast to the power of the government because oftentimes it is a combination of powers. It could be a political power combined with the power of social media, uh, combined with the power of 
education institutions and com even with the power of industry, just an entire cultural power working to promote evil and to suppress righteousness. That is the power of the beast. It's interesting that one of the reasons that the world so admires the beast is, it's, is when it begins to rise with a new power to do evil. It catches the world's attention. Romans 13, 3 and 4, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed and the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast and asked who is like the beast and who can wage war against the beast. So you say, why, well, why, why does the world follow this beast? Because the, the world which loves evil, longs for its jurisdiction to participate in evil to increase, and that's made possible when the government is corrupt. This is the picture of history right here, that the, whatever the beast is, whatever your definition of the beast is, the beast goes through cycles. There are cycles in which the beast looks like it's defeated, and then there's new cycles in which there are new fads of evil, new leaders of evil, new teachers of evil. And all of a sudden, evil becomes more on the forefront than it has before. And this is what fascinates the world. I say, wow, it looks like, the, like the, the, the beast was going to be put down. And then he resurrects. And what you'll see in chapters 13, both... Uh, our first section now and the end section, which we'll do next week, is that Satan is sort of desiring to imitate God in the sense that he, he wants to have his own trinity, the dragon, beast number one, and what we'll see next week, beast number two, the false prophet, is sort of an unholy trinity of power. And so here, Satan is sort of imitating Jesus in resurrection and you, we see this in history where it looked like that there were times where the beast was going to die. In A.D. 68, after ruling a tyrannical period of reign against the church, Nero died. He committed suicide in his 30s. And in A.D. 68, it looked like Rome was done. And so there was a great rebellion, an uprising by zealous Jews in Judea. This is our time. We're free from Rome. Well, then there was another Roman emperor named Vespasian that came and put down that uprising and installed his son Titus to be over Judea, treating that area of the world more harshly than ever, followed by his brother Domitian. And so, again, it looked like Nero was dead, Roman Empire was dead, but then it was three more centuries of complete evil against, a complete cruelty against the church. This is something we see cycle over and over again in history. That you'll see periods of great revival in the world where it looks like evil's defeated to a great degree and righteousness is being celebrated. You look at the, the colonies here, New England in 1741, the Great Awakening. It was just a period of mass darkness and all of a sudden George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, just tremendous preaching and it looked like all America was going to be saved. And then the beast 
brought darkness back into the land. 1857, the great prayer meeting that took place in Manhattan. Great prayer awakening under Jeremiah Lampfire in 1857. So many people were coming to Christ, they dug holes in the Hudson River ice to baptize them. And then evil creeps in again. The beast rises. 1904, the great Welsh revival. Like, wow, evil's defeated and Europe's coming back to Christ. And then you can look at Europe today. You look at the United States today and you can see, you know that the beast is rising again. It's a new resurrection of evil. We live in a nation that loves evil, loves perversion as we've never seen it. And with that comes the outbreak of violence. You can't have one without the other. So when John is talking about the fatal wound of the beast being healed, he's talking about evil coming back. And how interesting it is that, that the world, the world gives their worship and their allegiance when evil is resurrected, not when Jesus Christ is resurrected. The whole world follows one whose very purpose is to rise and inflict destruction and violence. That's who they worship. They don't look at Jesus Christ on the cross who died in order to end guilt and condemnation and to produce peace. Because the world loves sin. They love one who promotes, they promote sin. So in these kind of days, the question is asked, who is, who is like the, there it is at the end of verse four, who is like the beast? Because we're sort of intimidating. If you're honest, you're pretty intimidating right now, the times in which we live. Who is like the beast? Because right now, if you're honest, you, you will have to agree with this statement that there is, when the beast is active, there is an excitement in culture about evil. There is an excitement when evil leaders enact evil laws. There's an excitement when corporations give money to evil causes. There's an excitement when the news is, social media is permeated with that which is not true. When schools and universities plant seeds of doubt in the minds of students, causing them to leave and fall away from the church, which we're seeing in epic proportions. When a culture, when the beast is resurrected with new power, culture loves the evil that he produces. Here's the main activity of the beast. We've seen this. This is our fourth time, not surprised. The beast opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. So once again, we've seen maybe, like I said, maybe the fourth teaching in a row in which the, the way that the beast works is to use his mouth to bring people down, to spread lies, to spread deception. What do I mean by blasphemy? Because this is what his task is. His, his task is to blaspheme God. Here's how I would describe the blasphemy of the beast. Wherever the character and purposes of God are intentionally dishonored, you would have the work of the beast. Wherever lies about God are intentionally communicated to deceive weak minds, you would have the activity of, of the beast. So what would be a good definition of blasphemy in our culture? Probably the best that I could offer would be the teaching of Richard Dawkins. He's a, he's a 
evolutionary biologist, a former professor at Oxford. And I have two or three pages of notes that I took on how he has sought to use his mouth to bring students into university settings away from Christ. I don't have time for that. I'll just read you a quote from his book, probably most well-known book, The God Delusion. In The God Delusion, he says that religion is like a child having an imaginary friend. That's all, he says that's what we've come here today, to just worship our imaginary friend. He said, except this is what he says. Unfortunately, the God delusion also possesses adults and not just a minority of unfortunates in an asylum. The God delusion possesses a lot of people. This is Dawkins. I'm quoting Dawkins. I'm quoting Richard Dawkins. I'm not professing this. But I have to read this quote from The God Delusion to let you know what, what is being taught. We could find many people like him. But in The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins describes what he says, a psychotic God of the Bible, and this is all of his quote. He said, God is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He's jealous and proud of it. Petty, he's unjust, unforgiving, he's a control freak, he's vindictive, bloodthirsty, he's an ethnic cleanser, he's misogynistic, homophobic, he's a racist, he's infanticidal, he's genocidal, he's a megalomaniac, he's sadomasochist, he's a capricious, malevolent bully. And he travels from campus to campus spreading that. And people love it. When the beast is active, culture loves blasphemy. So that's what he does. He speaks blasphemies against God, sometimes through authors, sometimes on Twitter, sometimes through professors, sometimes through politicians. And the blasphemies that come from his mouth, from the beast's mouth, are so strong that it's intimidating. I know you feel that right now. Who can stand against the beast when he's as active as he is in our culture? So how do you, what's your strategy? What is our strategy against the beast? It's a pretty simple strategy. If his task, if the task of the beast is to use his mouth to speak blasphemy, then the task of the church is to use our mouth to speak truth louder than the beast. That's what he's called you to do. You say, when the beast is active, what's, what's our strategy? Preach more. Sing more. Gather to pray more. Witness to your neighbors more. Give to missions more. Send more people, men and women, out to speak more in places where the beast is active. I hear people all the time, well, I, just, I can't stand it anymore. I don't want to hear. I don't want to listen to the news. I don't want to hear one more report. I just want to go live in my garden 
I want to go on vacation. I want to have a new hobby. I just don't want to deal with it. That is not a strategy. I don't like the beast any more than you do. I'm as intimidated as you are because he's ugly and fierce. But just because you don't want something to be true out there does not mean you run from it and hide and say, I'm not going to deal with it. No, you speak louder than the beast. You speak louder than the beast. Alistair Begg says it this way, Christians are increasingly going to have to choose between obedience and comfort. The next decades will not bring apathy to the gospel, but antagonism. So let me tell you this. If you have felt like the past two days, two weeks, or two years have felt like war to you, well, it's because they are. You have felt exactly what's going on. Revelation 13, 7. The beast was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Whatever's going on in our nation is not just for our nation. It says it's spreading through the whole world. Europe is dealing with the same just absolutely mass, demonic, confused thinking as we are. Maybe more. I don't know who will get there first to complete rock bottom of depravity, but we're on a race. We're on a race. And I appreciate John using the word, verse 7, wage war. I, I need that. I need that language. Somebody tells me, this is not a game. What you came for today is war. Like, I, I can't think of a funny joke to tell right now because this is war. And I want you to think in terms, God wants you to think in terms of war. And it's worldwide in its, its influence. The beast has declared war against you, follower of Christ. Well, if we ended here, it would sort of be a hopeless thing. And you go, well, I don't really know in light of this, is there any hope for the world? And there is. And John tells us. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. That's not the hope part. <laughs> Here's the hope part. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. That's the hope part. As the, before the first day of creation, before the first drop of water... I skied yesterday at Lake Kiwi. It was very cold. But before there was any drop of water in Kiwi or the Atlantic Ocean, before there was one ray of sunshine, before there was a cloud in which the hawks could fly, before there was anything, God looked down the corridor of history and saw the activity of the beast, the rebellion of the world, and he saw that I was living in my sin along with you, and God in his electing grace wrote my name in the book of life and wrote it in red ink because Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago was going to leave heaven and die on a cross for the forgiveness of my sins. And because of that finished act, his death and resurrection, I am going to make it to heaven. Amen. My name is written in the book of life. So no matter what happens on this earth, 
No matter what the beast does, no matter what I lose, no matter how many battles along the way, I am going to make it to heaven because my name has been written with the blood of Christ in the Lamb's book of life. And so what I need to do is I need to get a hold of reality and say, I'm going to heaven and I need to learn how to deal with a little bit of adversity along the way because that's what John says is coming. Whoever has ears, let him hear. And we love that phrase, whether John says it or Jesus. And what he's saying here is, you know how to listen and you are really good at obtaining information. But do you know how to hear? Do you know how to hear God so it changes your life? We're better at listening than we are hearing. He said, hear this. There's gonna be some suffering along the way. If anyone goes, is, is to go into captivity, to captivity they'll go. In prison for Christ. In Iran. Christians living in boxcars right now in prison. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they'll be killed. 260,000 last year around the world. You will not find this quote in Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now. <laughs> because John is trying to prepare us. We're headed to heaven, but there will be suffering along the way. It may involve your business. It may, it may involve your personal finances. It's, you, 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 you may lose your health in your fight against the beast. You, you may lose your freedom in the fight against the beast. You, you may lose the life of someone so very close to you in your fight against the beast. So what do we do? That's why John ends the way he does. He gives us a, this is all part of his ending speech. This is not like a graduation speech where the, the actor from Hollywood comes and says, you all are going to change the world. It's not like a pregame speech by a, a coach that says, we're going to win today. We're going to totally smother this team. He didn't say that. This is a general talking to his troops since some of you are going to die today in battle. And this particular battle may not go well for us today. We're going to win the war. But this battle, we may not win. That's what John talks. So what do you do? You go back to where we started. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. That the answer is to not quit. Because your name's written in the book of life, you know where you're going. You suffer now for the glory of God. I had a bad weekend last weekend. Not this weekend. Skiing on Lake Kiowa is never a bad weekend. This weekend was good. Last weekend, uh, it's just a lot of mess ups. I was doubting my call to ministry, couldn't figure out the sermon. I could gotten, I, my wife, I could not get her to submit to me, understand, <laughs> understand I was right. And so I just let it all sort of boil up and I was sad and I talked to, I shared that with 
Caleb Crittenham, who works with missions at our church, and he just looked at me and said, well, buckle up, sissy pants. <laughs> we, we, that's a little running joke with us. We really found that to be a title of a sermon. It was preached somewhere last year, so we just kidding on staff. Buckle up, sissy pants. I got something better than that. I walked into my office Monday morning, still not very encouraged. Even after Sunday at church, then I had a good small group experience, but then I sort of went down Sunday night. Walked into my office Sunday morning, and one of the students at this church painted this of a ship in a storm and put it on my desk. I mean, I'm pouting. I walk in Monday morning to see this battered ship. Like, I'm ready. I, like, I can't make it. And this is the picture of the church. And the reason she did it, I can't stand it when you guys use sermons against me. <laughs> she said, she wrote, she had no idea what I was going through. She wanted to get the, this painting to me five weeks ago, but the little label at the bottom wasn't, couldn't get it back from the printer. So it was about six weeks late, which was Monday morning for me. And she said, on the bottom, it's a gold plate, but you wouldn't see it, so I just printed it. She said, this is what you said in the sermon. Thank you. Bruised and battered, but safe forever. Because your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're on that ship. What a privilege it is to be part of the fight. He's gonna get you home a lot of difficulties on the boat ride there. But you're going to make it home. Everybody else is not going to make it. They're going to compromise. They're going to sell out. Their names may be in some church book, some church computer. But their names are not written in the book of life. And they'll give way to the beast. They'll follow the beast. They'll cave and compromise and follow the beast. But you whose names have been written in the Lamb Book of the Life on this ship, Jesus, the captain of your salvation, lovingly leading you through the storms of life, is leading you to the safe harbor of heaven. You will arrive there bruised and battered, but safe forever. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.